precious and glorious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Join me in your Bibles in Luke chapter 13 this morning. Luke 13. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, you feel free to use one of the pew Bibles in the, uh, in the rack in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, that, uh, that, just consider that our gift to you. Luke chapter 13. If you'd like to follow along in your service guide, there is space for taking notes, for following along with the outline. There are also discussion questions that we're going to be including every week in the service guide or bulletin, whichever we have on a given week. Here's what we'll be doing with those on Wednesday nights. We will be meeting in the classroom right behind the piano, and we'll have a discussion time that Jim Fountain will be leading for us on Wednesday nights. And the goal of that is to take what we learn on Sunday and not forget about it, but to come back on Wednesday and, and talk about it and apply it in our lives. I don't know about you, but you can sit through... 52 sermons every Sunday morning. You come Sunday night, you get 104 sermons in a year. And it's easy to get all this information and then kind of like forget about it or not get it and help it make the trip to your heart. The goal on, on Wednesday nights is to help us take the truth that we learn and help it make the trip to our hearts. Help us to get, get it from what we learned on Sunday morning into our lives and be able to have uh, just some community and discussion with each other. Uh, so just encourage you to look over those. By the way, if you come out on Wednesday nights, here's what I would ask you to do. Read through those questions ahead of time and answer them ahead of time. That way you'll be ready to have a good, good conversation on Wednesdays during that small group time. And on something new we're doing this summer, just want to draw your attention to that. Luke chapter 13. We'll be in verses 31 to 35, and I just encourage you to follow along as I read our text this morning. And the same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out, depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out devils, demons, and I do. I perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which kills the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings? And ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Foxes and hens are not uh, natural friends. Uh, They are actually natural enemies. We have sayings, of course, about foxes guarding hen houses and all those things. I don't know if anyone's ever done that, thought that was a good idea. Uh, I've never actually had a pet fox. I don't know if any of you have ever had a pet fox. I, don't even, I can't even say that I have seen one in the wild. I've seen them in zoos before. Uh, but foxes, of course, are sort of proverbially, proverbially sly and sneaky and destructive. You can talk about foxes getting into the, into the vineyard, and we can talk about foxes getting into the hen house. We have fables, of course, from people like Aesop talking about uh, you know, hens outfoxing foxes. And at first glance, the fox is far stronger than the hen, right? And will almost always win in a fight with with that particular bird. Isn't it interesting in our text today, we see both animals showing up in just these five, six verses that we're looking at. There's King Herod, I'll say King Herod, who really thinks that he's hot stuff, uh, who Jesus says he's he's a fox. He's small, he's sneaky, he's insignificant, and he ultimately won't be able to thwart God's plans. And then Jesus changes metaphors and compares himself to a hen who is gathering her brood under her wings. Now, he's not connecting them in the way that we would with our little sayings and with our little fables. But we see both of these animals in this text. Now, what is this this passage all about? We're coming to the end of Luke chapter 13. We're on the journey to Jerusalem. Jesus is making his way to the cross. Every time that Jerusalem gets mentioned in Luke, it's sort of code word. It's, It's almost like shorthand for What's going to happen in Jerusalem, which is the betrayal, the rejection, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus? Jerusalem is all about what will happen there. It's all about the work of redemption that Jesus will accomplish. And Luke is moving inexorably towards the cross. Every chapter, every verse is moving us more and more to that climax. Luke takes a full ten chapters to detail the journey from Galilee as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem for that final time. And where we've been in recent weeks, we have seen this tension, this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders continue to escalate. Back in chapter 11, they had accused him of 
uh, casting out demons by the power of Satan himself. I mean, that, if that is not sort of the ultimate insult against the Son of God, I don't know what is. By the end of that chapter, Jesus will flat out denounce the, the Pharisees and the lawyers, the religious leaders, as a bunch of hypocrites, as a bunch of legalists. And from that point to the end of Luke chapter 11, if you look at verse 53 of Luke 11, just back a couple of pages, it says, They began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying in wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they may accuse him. So they're, they're trying to get Jesus to say something heretical so they can then bring him before the Sanhedrin and say, execute him as a, as a blasphemer, execute him as a, as a heretic. That leads Jesus into Luke chapter 12 to offer a series of warnings against the, to the disciples and to the crowds, warning them against hypocrisy and against deception and against the ways that our hearts will play tricks on us. Recognizing that as we come to this final confrontation that the need to be clear about your commitments is all the more necessary. You say, I've come not to bring unity but bring division. To, to separate the world into two camps, those who are for me and those who are against me. Then Luke 13 comes in with this call to repentance. Either you're on my side or you're against me. Either you are repenting or you are rejecting me. Like a tree that's bearing no fruit that's going to be cut down. There's judgment that's going to come. Then the conflict escalates even further. Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath day and they go ballistic. And Jesus is like, look, you care more about your man-made rules than you do about people made by God in his own image. What we looked at last week, Jesus making it very clear that entrance into the kingdom is through a narrow door. Not all who think they are in the kingdom really are in the kingdom. Not all who think they are saved are actually saved. In fact, few are saved. Many who think they are saved will in the end be condemned and judged. And he even comes to the end to say there's many who are first, Jews, who will actually be last, who will be cast out of the kingdom. And many who are last, Gentiles, who will be first, now, that would have been a major insult to the Pharisees and to their, to their allies to suggest that their simple Jewishness, their, you know, their, uh, their lineage was not enough to get them into the kingdom, was not enough to guarantee their salvation. So as we come to verse 31, I think we should read this warning that the Pharisees come along. Jesus, get out of Galilee, get out of Perea, because Herod's trying to kill you. This is not a well-intentioned, hey, we just wanted to give you a heads up. Word has it that he's out to kill you. We, we really were looking out for you, Jesus. This is not them watching out for him. This is not them keeping an eye on his back, watching his six. But this is the, the, a scheme on the part of the Pharisees to try to get Jesus to Jerusalem. Think about this. Jesus is very, very popular in Galilee, right? Huge crowds of people are following him. Many people are acclaiming him as the Messiah, He's got a strong base of support in, in Galilee. If they're going to try to get rid of Jesus, Galilee is not the place to do it. You've got to get him away from his base of support, get him to Jerusalem where the Sanhedrin can really call the shots, and they can put into action their scheme to finally kill Jesus. So we see these Pharisees here in verse 31. Get out of, get out of this region. Now, he's probably in southern Galilee, maybe in Perea. Herod's trying to kill you. Now, what's going on in this passage? Coming back to answer that question, this is all about revealing to us the character of Christ. Verses 31 to 35, it's a brief passage, but we get a glimpse. The veil is taken back to say, who is Jesus? What does he look like? What is his essential character? You say, oh yeah, I love Jesus. You come along, I'm here to worship Jesus today, but what is that Jesus like that you profess to know and to worship? It's an important question. We can't just invent Jesus how we want to. We can't just take the, you know, the coloring page of Jesus and color him in however we want. No, we, we have to worship and love and trust the Jesus that the Bible reveals to us. So these verses are going to reveal to us three attributes of Christ. Now, when I say attribute, these are not three different ways that Jesus behaves, but this is who he is perfectly and infinitely for all eternity. Three attributes of Christ that here's what these should do. We should marvel. I said, oh, that's interesting. No, this should stir our hearts. The Bible does not simply speak to our minds. It speaks to our will, and it also speaks to our emotions, our affections. So my goal this morning is to, for the next few minutes, stir your affections for Christ. If you leave here today with greater love for Jesus because you have seen him in greater detail and greater clarity, we will have succeeded in what we have set out to do today. So the first attribute of Jesus that is on display, that is center stage in this passage, is his sovereignty. We see Christ's sovereignty. Where do we see that? Well, we see it on the backdrop of these plots that are unfolding against Jesus. We see man's plots here in verse 31. We've got the Pharisees and we've got Herod. 
We already talked about the Pharisees. Who's Herod? Herod is the son of Herod the Great, who built all of the, you know, the Temple Mount and built Masada. After he died, his kingdom was divided up among his kids. And Herod Antipas got the northern part of his kingdom, the region of Galilee and Perea. He does not have sway over Judea, where Jerusalem is. That's become a Roman province, directly ruled by a Roman military governor. So the Pharisees are like, Jesus, you need to get out of the Galilee and out of Perea, probably where he is over in the, uh, in the East Bank, not the West Bank, the East Bank, modern-day Jordan, where he's probably at this point. You need to get out of Herod's territory because he's trying to kill you. And you know, it's probably likely that Herod was indeed trying to kill Jesus. We know he had killed John the Baptist. We know Herod is very insecure in his position. Nothing scarier than a would-be tyrant who feels threatened, right? So he's a would-be tyrant, and he feels threatened. Here's this guy who's, people are proclaiming to be the Messiah, proclaiming to be the king. The last thing you want to be, if you are an insecure king, is someone who everyone else says is king. So for good reason, if you're Herod, you're trying to say, how can we get rid of Jesus? If you're the Pharisees, you want to get him down to Judea so you can kill him. So it's a win-win for the, for the Herodians and for the Pharisees. By the way, these guys fight each other like Democrats and Republicans. The only thing they can agree on is they both hate Jesus, right? And they want to get rid of Jesus. So it's a clever conspiracy. It is a well-oiled conspiracy to try to get Jesus out of Galilee, get him down to Judea where he can't cause trouble for Herod and where the Pharisees can often. In spite of that, How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 32. So Jesus responds to this plot, and we see here his sovereignty. Now, what do I mean by his sovereignty? I mean the fact that God is in control, that he, as king, does whatever he wants to do. I mean that everything that happens, happens according to the will of God. Nothing happens outside of God's plan. So even evil that happens, even the death of Jesus, is the outworking of the plan of God. There's nothing that just happens by chance, or by mistake, or by whim. Even these plots, Herod's off doing his own thing. He doesn't care about what God thinks. The Pharisees are doing their own thing. They don't care about what God thinks. They're actually fulfilling God's plan. So Jesus comes along in verse 32. He says, go ye and tell that fox. So Herod thinks he's pulling all the strings. He thinks he's working the plan. Jesus is saying, no, you're just a fox. And sort of Hebrew thought, fox is not so much the one who is sly, though that is one of the nuances. It's one who is sort of weak and powerless. So, for example, when Nehemiah is building the wall of Jerusalem, his enemies come along and they're like, this wall's a joke. A fox would come and destroy it. Just a little fox, not a very powerful animal. A fox is not an elephant or even a lion. It's just this little animal that can be kind of destructive, but it's not something that you you stay up late at night trying to guard against. There's even a a, a saying in, in, in Hebrew where someone thinks that they're a lion, but they're really a fox. So by calling Herod a fox, Jesus is saying, You think that you're a big, tough lion and you're a little puny fox who's trying to get by on just being deceptive and scheming. It's another way of saying your little plot, your little plan will not stand. It will not thwart the plan that I am working. By the way, when he says to the Pharisees, hey, go back and tell Herod, he's saying, by the way, I know your little plan, you're in cahoots with him. You're, You're not fooling me by coming and pretending to be, oh, Jesus, Herod's trying to kill me. He's like, okay, Herod told you to say that, didn't he? Go back, I got a message for him. Go tell that, that, that fox. Tell that sly, sneaky, weak, wannabe king. You see, Herod pictured himself as the chess master. Jesus is like, no, you're, you're just a pawn on the chessboard. By the way, so are you Pharisees. You're, you're not even the, the queen on the chessboard. You're just a pawn on the chessboard. So he says here in verse 32, he says, Behold, I cast out demons and I do cures. In other words, what has Jesus been de- doing? He's been casting out demons. He's been healing people. He's saying, I'm going to continue doing those things. I'm not changing my ministry. I'm not changing my plan. I'm not changing what I have set out to do just because of your big, scary threat. It does not deter me at all. The Father has given me a plan to do, a mission to accomplish, and I'm going to carry out that mission. He says, I'm going to do this today and tomorrow, and the third day I'll be perfected. Now, he's not giving a literal itinerary. Okay, three days I'll be out of here. But he's simply saying, I am working according to my own calendar, according to my own timetable. What we see here is Jesus Christ is firmly in control of everything that's happening. He's not sort of being directed because of what Herod does. He's not being misdirected because of what the Pharisees say. He's saying, I've come to do the will of my father. I must be about my father's business, he said back as a 12-year-old boy. And he continues every step perfectly doing the will of God the Father. That's good news. Guess what? You and I do not do that. (laughs) It's called sin, right? We fall short of the glory of God. We don't do God's will, we do our own will. We veer off from the path that he has outlined for us. But Jesus never, ever sinned. 
Not for one second did he deviate from what the Father had given him to do. He kept the law of God perfectly. He obeyed God perfectly. And here's the good news of the gospel. He did it in my place. The only way that I can go to heaven is by perfect obedience to the law of God. And I can't do that, but Jesus has on my behalf. And that's good news. We call that the active obedience of Christ on the behalf of his people, keeping the law of God, doing the will of God. I'm working my own schedule. I'm going to finish the mission God has given to me. Then the end of verse 32, he says, and the third day I shall be perfected. Now, I don't know. I can't help but see in this reference to the third day a little hint towards the resurrection. I think Luke's readers, Theophilus, he knows the story about Luke and Acts and what Jesus has done. The third day is sort of like, hey, this is the climax, the resurrection. What Jesus is saying by I shall be perfected is not to say that he was imperfect and that he would now reach a place of perfection. He's God. He is morally perfect. What he means by that is I will accomplish the goal. I will cross the finish line. I will finish the mission. I will do everything the Father has given me to do. That's what is meant by the I am being perfected. I shall be perfected. This comes up back in Luke chapter 12 and verse 50. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. That's referencing, to the, referencing the cross. And how am I straightened until it be what? Accomplished. Until I finish what the Father has given, to me, given me to do. Also over in Luke 22, verse 37, the same Greek word shows up. Luke 22, verse 37. Jesus here is about to be betrayed and Arrested, this is the night of the Last Supper. He says, for I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. He was reckoned among the transgressors. He's saying, everything that's happening in my life is happening according to God's plan, and I've got to finish that. This is the same Greek word that's used in John 19, verse 30, when Jesus says, it is finished. That's what he is looking to, is the death on the cross and his resurrection in my place and your place. So in that little word perfected in verse 32 is summarized the entirety of the good news that we proclaim and lean on as Christians. He came to finish that mission. He came to die on the cross and finish it he did. Now, what comfort it is for you and I to know that King Jesus is sovereign over King Herod. Hey, this world is full of a bunch of King Herods who think that they're in charge. By the way, that's who all of us are without Christ, is we're King Herod. We think that I do my own thing, I make my own choices, I'm autonomous, I get to do what I want to do. And Jesus is saying, King Jesus always overrules King Herod. You Think about the, the would-be tyrants in our world, the powerful people, the Vladimir Putins. King Jesus overrules them all. Those people who would be would-be tyrants in your life and my life, people we call manipulators, people we call abusers, those who would use anger and guilt-tripping and gaslighting to try to control and get people to do what they want them to do. King Jesus rules over those King Herods. They, even they, are under God's authority. And though it may not feel like it, God is in control even when those things happen. That's where we take hope. That's where we find hope is in the fact that God really is in control. Okay, we move on, verse 33. Jesus says, nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow. Now, the idea of walking is I must continue journeying to Jerusalem. He's saying, guys, you know, I, I'm not going to Jerusalem to try and run away from Herod. I'm going to Jerusalem to fulfill what the Father has given me to do. So today, tomorrow, and the day following, he's always giving that Today, tomorrow, the third day, this, I'm working according to the itinerary, the plan that the Father has given to me. I'm not operating according to man's timetable. Why? For it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. Or in other words, it has to be that if, if I'm going to die, I've got to die at Jerusalem. Now, notice just a couple of words in verse 33. I must. That's not Jesus saying, oh, I'm just, this is something I have to do. This is just say, this is the Father's plan. This is what God has ordained must happen. This is what the prophecies demand. This is what God's plan demands for me to go to Jerusalem. Why? Prophets die in Jerusalem. Jesus is identifying himself with the long line of prophets that Israel had rejected and killed in Jerusalem. Now, this is loaded with irony. He's speaking to the very Pharisees who are coming up with a plot to try to get rid of him and saying, yeah, you all have this little plot to get rid of me. This is actually going to fulfill God's plan. Uh, so even in your moment of triumph, God still wins. So he's saying the holy city has an unholy monopoly 
on killing God's holy prophets. I must die there is what he is saying in verse 33. Now, what do we learn from this? I don't know that we can find an act of evil more evil than the rejection and the murder of Jesus. We can't find an act more evil. We have evil people motivated by evil motives, killing the perfect, sinless Son of God, completely completely unmerited, completely undeserved. A lot of atrocities in history, you can kind of say, I kind of see why you did what you did. It was still wrong. But this here, there is no justification whatsoever that can be thought of for them killing Jesus. So you got wicked people killing the perfect, sinless, holy, blameless Son of God in cold blood for no other reason than they hate him. That's evil. That is the absolute epitome of sin. That is evil incarnate. And yet, if we can say that the cross of Christ, the murder of Jesus, fulfilled God's plan, that says to us that God rules over even evil. And you know what? That's exactly what the apostle said. So volume two, the book of Acts, was written by Dr. Luke as well. Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching on Pentecost to many of the same people who actually killed Jesus. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says, Him being delivered by the determinate, and count, determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. In other words, he's saying Jesus being handed over to be killed was foreordained by God. He didn't, God didn't just look down the quarter of time and be like, ah, yeah, that looks like what's going to happen. No, God actually ordained this. This was his plan to redeem mankind. He says, Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God has raised up. Over in chapter 4, the same point is made. Chapter 4, verse 28. Verse 27 says, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles with the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Here's what the apostles are saying. Everything that happened at the death of Jesus was foreordained by God. Judas betraying him because he was greedy, foreordained by God. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin betraying him because they were jealous and hateful, foreordained by God. The Romans killing him and murdering him just because they were a brutal, oppressive people, foreordained by God. He said, well, that means they can't be judged for it. Well, by wicked hands you did this. You are accountable for your actions, even if your actions fulfill God's plan. You're like, I don't get it. That doesn't, my, my little mind can't make that work. Guess what? It's not up to our little minds to make these things work. The Bible presents both of these. God rules over and overrules even evil, and evil people are responsible for the evil that they do. Now, I find great comfort in that. When I see evil in this world, those who commit that evil are responsible before God. But I find comfort knowing this, that evil is not ultimate, and evil will not win in the end. In the end, God wins. This is God's sovereignty, that he, his sovereignty, his rule over the world is pervasive, it is meticulous, it is infallible, and it is total. Ephesians 1.11 says he is working all things according to the counsel of his will. We would be making a big mistake to say, well, that only means some things. No, all things are working according to the counsel of his will. Psalm 115 verse 3 says that he does whatever he wants in heaven and earth. Daniel 4.35 says no one can look at God and say, what doest thou? God does not answer to us. That is God's sovereignty. Neither Satan's evil nor man's rebellion can ever thwart God's plan. And Jesus reminds us by saying today, tomorrow, the day after, that even our time is in God's hands. And just as Herod was powerless to hurt him until the time came, so too the powers of this world cannot lay a finger on you apart from God's permission. And that's really incredibly comforting, isn't it? Now, if, if you and I truly believe that, if I really believe God is working all things according to the counsel of his will, my life is invincible until the time that God calls me home. If I truly believe that no one can lay a finger on me apart from God's permission, by the way, read Job 1 if you want to see that worked out. Should that not lead me to have a tranquil peace in God? How often do you find yourself just your heart Stirred up with being fretful and, and, and anxious and, and sleepless and, and, and just 
stirred up all the time, and you turn on the news, and it's just, ah, what's going on? And you look at the bank statements, well, how am I going to pay the bills? And you, 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 you think about your grandkids, and you worry about your, your children, and you, you, you worry about being alone, and you worry about all of these things. What if in those moments you preached to yourself this reality, God's truly in control, and that's not a cliché. That's not a cliche. That's not just to say, well, God could have he wanted to be in control, but he's chosen not to and everything's just running. No, he really is in control. Spurgeon said that the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is the soft pillow on which we lay our head. Put our head on that soft pillow every night. For the child of God, there's no chance, luck, accident, or mistakes in our lives All the hairs of our head and all the seconds of our days are in God's hands. So we see this this vision, this revelation of the sovereignty of Christ, and it is far more pervasive than we could ever imagine. It's far grander than we can fathom. We, We often will try to sort of cut it short to be like, I don't know if God's in control of these things, just those things. He's saying, no, all these things. But I want to hasten on to to show you a second portrait, a second attribute of Christ that is on display in this text. And it is this, it's Christ's compassion. So we see his sovereignty, he's in control of all things, including his own death, including the evil of the cross. And if he's in control of that, then he's in control of the other things as well. But almost to balance that out in a sense, to complement that truth, is the truth of Christ's compassion. We see this coming into verse 34. Here's the theological challenge. See, sometimes we can so emphasize and focus just on the sovereignty of God that we can neglect the love and compassion of God. So there's some people who will say, okay, God's in control of everything, and he saves whom he will, which the biblical truth, that they will then conclude from that, well, then God does not love the world. Because God saves some and does not save all, then he only loves some and he hates all the rest. He loves the saved but hates the lost. People can conclude that from the doctrine of God's sovereignty. After all, if anyone's saved, it's because God wanted to save them, and no one would be saved outside of God's plan. That is a mistake. That's a mistake of taking one attribute of God and exalting it above another. Now, people make the opposite mistake, right? Well, they'll say God's love is the ultimate one, and they'll neglect the fact that God's actually in control. God's just really nice. He's trying his best. But evil, he can't really do anything about. We make a mistake when we emphasize one attribute of God to the exclusion of others. We're dealing with God, and God is what? He is infinite, which means he is infinite in every single one of his attributes. It's not like God is, well, he's 80% love, and he's a little bit of justice, and a little bit of this, and we have this pecking order. No, he is all of all of his attributes. He's not like a pie that you can sort of slice up into little pieces, and this little piece is his love, and this little one is his justice. But because he's infinite... He's infinite in all of his attributes. Now, if your head is feeling like, it should, right? We're dealing with God, and we're supposed to marvel at him, and he doesn't fit into our little boxes or to our little pie pans. So we see not only his sovereignty, he's in control of everything that goes on, but we also see his compassion. And listen, not just his compassion for the saved. This is his compassion for those who would murder him. You want to say, God only loves the saved. God only loves the elect. What do you do with this? Where he says in verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which kills the prophets and stone those which are sent unto you, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Do you hear the the, the emotion in this? He's not just saying, well, you've rejected me, and that's tough, and you're going to face God's judgment. He's saying, I have compassion on those who've rejected the prophets, who have murdered the prophets, on this city, this wicked city that would eventually, and he knows this and he planned this, that would kill him. He has compassion on those who would forever reject him. So how do we see his compassion? We see it in Jesus' lament over unrepentant sinners. One thing for us to understand that, well, God loves us as his people. And by the way, I'm not denying the truth that God has a special love for his people. He loves If you're a believer in Jesus, he loves you in a way that he does not love those who are not his people. He loves you as his own bride. He loves you as his own son, his own daughter. And that love is an intense love that is very, very different than his general love for humanity. 
The Bible contrasts this love. The, the love God has for his people is so strong in comparison that he can say, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. That, that his love for us is so intense that for the world by comparison is, is hatred. God will eventually judge those who reject him. And he will, his wrath will burn eternally against them. So he can say in Psalm 7, thou hatest all the workers of iniquity. But there is a sense, a very real sense that the Bible says that God has love even for those who will reject him in the end. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we see Jesus' example here of looking at those who reject him and saying, I still love you and I'm lamenting over you. So this language, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it's full of pathos. Remember David when his son Solomon finally was killed in battle? Absalom, Absalom, my son, and he's, he's weeping and he's grieving, even though Absalom tried to kill him, even though Absalom tried to turn, turn the kingdom against him. He's still brokenhearted over the rebellion and the rejection of his son. Jesus is like David in the Old Testament, lamenting over his deceased, rebellious son. He's like Jeremiah, who looked at the city of Jerusalem through tear-filled eyes and saw the destruction. You can read the book of Lamentations, by the way. And Jesus is doing the same thing. This is what your sin has brought, and it breaks my heart. Got to have a category for that in your theology. If your theology is all just cold logic and God saves and he loves these ones but not these ones, what do you do with this? He loves and longs for and laments over sinners. And Jesus is not just lamenting over any city. He's lamenting over a city that is seething with hatred towards him. Jerusalem. The city that would say crucify him. The city where the apostles would be run out of town and killed and murdered, stoned. This is not just sappy sentimentality. This is genuine compassion. In his holiness, nothing grieves God more than sin. Nothing breaks his heart more than sin and the consequences that sin brings on God's creation. You think, well, sin, it bothers me. Hey, your sin might grieve you, but that cannot compare to the grief that it brings to God. It might grieve other people in your life, like, man, this addiction, this problem, and it really hurt. cannot compare to the grief and the heartache that it brings to God. So verse 34 goes on. We see his lament, but then we see this longing. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings? He says, I, I, how often I desired to do this. This was my longing. Now, what's that image of gathering a, a hen gathering the chickens under or the chicks under her wings, gathering the brood under her wings? This is rooted in the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 and 11, God talking about the sheltering his people under his wings. Or Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, talking about Ruth, who was a Moabitess, said, I have come to shelter under the wings of Jehovah. Or Psalm 91, verse 4, you know, those who abide under the wings of the Almighty. Abide under his shadow. It's the place of protection. So imagine a, a hawk is flying through the barnyard, and there's a little brood of chicks there, and the, the mother hen sees the hawk flying down. Now, the, those, little, those little chicks are easy prey for that hawk. So what does she do? She shelters them under her wings. Or a thunderstorm is coming, covers them under her wings, and runs for shelter. It is a symbol of protection. It's a symbol of bringing them close Jesus says, how often was my desire, every visit I made to Jerusalem, every message I preached, was to bring you close to me, to bring you into a right relationship with God. He has this longing to see them saved. What a metaphor for the safety of God's people to be protected under the shelter of the wings of Jehovah. You see, Ezekiel 33, verse 11, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked repent and come to me and have life. First Timothy 2, verse 3, God, Paul says that God desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of, tr of the truth. And Jesus is expressing that same longing here. Now, notice the end of the verse. He says, this is what I long to do often over and over again, and ye would not. There's a play on words here. How often would I have done this, but you would not? He says, I desired it, you desired it not. It's the exact same word in the Greek. This is what I desired, but you did not desire it. I willed it, but you willed it not. 
Jesus was willing to save and to shelter them, but they repeatedly rejected him. Now, what is Jesus teaching here? He is teaching that this is the compassionate heart of God towards sinners, towards all sinners. There is a readiness on God's part to forgive any and all who repent. Jesus is not teaching that God really, really, really wants to save everybody but just can't quite make it happen because people's wills get in the way. Listen, if salvation were dependent on your will and my will, none of us would be saved. Here's what the Bible teaches. Our hearts are wicked, right? Our hearts love sin. Men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. So he's not saying that God just can't quite do the job without cooperation on our part. He's not teaching that the divine will is held hostage to the human will. He's saying, here's what your free will does. The gospel comes to you. The the, the beckoning of grace comes to you, and you say, nope, I would rather rule myself than have Jesus rule over me. And by the way, that's the universal response of every human heart. That's what it means to be a sinner, right? It doesn't mean that, well, we're mostly sinful, but there's a little good in us that, that still really loves God and is into God. No, without God's grace, every sinner on the planet looks at the offer of grace as, I don't want it. That means I have to humble myself. It means I have to repent. It means I have to acknowledge God as God and not me. I have to give up my idols, I've got to trust Jesus. I've got to let go of my self-righteousness. And that's the last thing that a sinner in his sin wants to do. We have free will. But listen, free will condemns us. It cannot save us. Only God's grace can save us. We love our sin. When offered the good of the gospel, we reject it. We're blind, deaf, and dead. So when the gospel comes to us, we say, nope, don't want it. So how could these people miss it? Same reason why you and I missed it over and over again. And the only reason why you ever responded to the gospel was because God in his grace somehow, mysteriously, in a way that I can't fathom or explain, did it. John 3 says that, hey, the spirit moves in a way that nobody understands. Someone comes along and be like, I know how it all does. This happens and this happens. No, we don't know how God does it, but somehow he does this miracle in our hearts and brings us to a place where we see our sin and we trust Jesus. Let me put it this way. Let me put it very simply. If you are saved this morning, it is purely because of God's grace. It's not because you are smarter than your neighbor who rejected it. It's not because you were smarter than the kid sitting next to you in Sunday school and you got saved and he didn't. It's not because you had a better heart than he did. All of our hearts are broken and sinful. It's because God graciously saved you. You know what that does? Maybe in your heart you're feeling, well, I got, there's got to be something in me that makes the difference. No. Where's pride? It's excluded. It's shut out. The door is locked and pride is left outside in the snow. Boasting? So so Paul puts it this way. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. Why? Lest any man should boast. So if God said, okay, I'll save everyone who does a handstand, those who do handstands would have a little bit to claim to say, I could do a handstand. God's like, nope, it's purely by grace through faith, so those who are saved can take no credit for their salvation. God gets all the glory. Now, here's my point here. We see here, the point of this is to see the compassionate heart of Jesus for sinners. Sinners like you, sinners like me. God is ready and eager to forgive all who repent If you come to Jesus in repentance and faith, he's not going to say, I'm not going to save you. All who come to him, he will forgive. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is a readiness and a wideness and a graciousness in God's heart to forgive sinners. If he forgave you, you understand that. So how do we treat sinners in our lives? We're supposed to walk as Christ walked. So people are going to wrong you. People are going to malign you. They're going to gossip about you. They might even abuse you or mistreat you. And we sometimes feel justified in, well, I'm right and they're wrong, and I'm going to put on my self-righteous pharisaical robes, and I'm going to hold that against them. Careful. If God was compassionate and forgiving and gracious to you in your sin, and it's totally his kindness, ought we not to be gracious and forgiving and kind to those who wrong us? What this also means, why is Jesus lamenting he knows what's going to happen to Jerusalem? The year AD 70, just a generation later, there'd be this big rebellion in Judea, and the Romans would come, they would besiege the city of Jerusalem, and it is horrific. 
If you read Josephus' description of what happened in the city, people starved to death. There was infighting in the city, people being slaughtered on the Temple Mount. They became so emaciated by, by disease and hunger, they couldn't even bury their dead, so they just chucked them over the wall. The Romans were so ruthless that anyone who came out to try to surrender, they captured and they crucified them. And they cut down all the trees around Jerusalem to make crosses surrounding the city with people in agony being crucified. And the Romans were like, let's, let's have some fun with this. They put people in the most contorted positions they could think of just to mock them in their suffering and strike terror in the hearts of the people in the city. When the Romans broke into the city, they ruthlessly murdered women, children, old people. Some people fled down into the sewers and the Romans chased them down there. Some people tried to flee from the city with their gold, so they swallowed their gold. When they captured them, cut them open, take the gold. Absolutely horrific. We're we're talking about stomach-turning kind of violence and horror. That's what came on Jerusalem. Jesus looks, he can see that suffering that's coming their way. And he laments it. He sees the suffering that you and I face. By the way, all the suffering we face is ultimately because either sin or the fact that we live in a fallen world. All suffering in this world is ultimately due to either our sin or Adam's sin, right? We live with death. Is, we have death because of sin, death passed on all men, and that all sinned in Adam. So the, the, the agonizing process of death and disease and sickness is because we live in a fallen world. Jesus does not sit back and say, well, humanity, that's your fault. Adam, you really blew it on their behalf. Yeah, that's tough. You made your bed sleep in it. No, even in our suffering, even in our suffering, he has compassion towards us. This is our Savior, and you're a believer in Jesus he looks at that suffering as, you're my child. Come boldly to me. Come to my presence. I'm touched with the feelings of your infirmities. So we see the sovereignty of Jesus. We see the compassion of Jesus. We put these two together. They're together in Jesus in a way they are in no other person. Right? There's no other person who's perfectly compassionate and perfectly in control. We know people who are powerful, but they're manipulative and mean and take advantage of other people. And we know people who are compassionate, but they're not really in control. Jesus has both firm control and total compassion. We come to a third attribute to round this out. Verse 35. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And verily, I say unto you, you shall not see me until the time when ye shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. We see here his justice. We see here his judgment. You can make another theological mistake. I said some people can emphasize God's sovereignty to such an extent that they forget about his universal love for all of humanity. We can make the opposite mistake in a different direction. We can so emphasize his compassion and his love that we deny his justice. So you hear people say things like this. I don't believe that a loving God could do fill in the blank. I don't believe that a God who is all love would condemn people to eternal conscious torment in hell. We have these little categories of God's love, then he can't do X because we have this little human definition of love that can only do these things. Jesus can, in the same breath, say, I'm longing for Jerusalem like a, to gather them like a hand gathers her brood. And then the next verse say, and your house is left to you desolate. This is a declaration of judgment that's going to fall upon them, That what I just described in A.D. 70. This echoes back to the Old Testament, uh, the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesied in the final days of Jerusalem before it fell to the Babylonians. And he used language like this. The city is going to be desolate without inhabitants. There's not going to be anybody left because they're either all killed or they died in famine or they were taken captive. And that's precisely what happened. Jesus is saying, just as Israel in the Old Testament rejected me and the Babylonians came and flattened the city, so Jerusalem of my day has rejected me, and the Romans are going to come in and flatten the city. There's going to be intense judgment that's going to fall because of sin. This is a prophecy of judgment. The same Jesus who longs for sinners to repent will one day unleash his wrath against sinners who refuse to repent. This is serious business. All who die without Christ will face God's wrath for eternity. Romans 1.18 says, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Not just some. We think, okay, well, okay, Hitler, we get it. Osama bin Laden, okay, we get that. They, they, they deserve God's wrath. No, all unrighteousness, the greed of your heart that no one else sees. The, the thoughts that go through your mind that if, they were, if people knew about them would be horrified. The little deceptions, 
of our tongue. The ways that we, we desire what our neighbor has and we are jealous towards them. The ways that we put other things before God. Our failure to love God with all our heart. All of that, God says, His wrath will one day fall on all sin. I quoted John 3.16 earlier, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. John 3.36 says this, the one who does not obey Christ, the one who does not believe in Him, God's wrath abides on him already. It's like water being held back by a dam and you're sitting down there, just finished listening to part of um, David McCullough's book on the Johnstown flood, sitting downstream from this dam that's going to break, and one day the dam will break and God's judgment and his wrath will sweep you away if you do not know Christ. So that sounds kind of Old Testament-y. That doesn't sound very New Testament-y. Well, if you read Revelation, you're like, I like Jesus as the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. You know Revelation 6? Talks about people on Judgment Day in the end times who will cry and say, mountains fall on us and hide us from the face and from the wrath of what? The Lamb. The same Jesus who died for sinners will one day unleash judgment against sinners. It's serious business. Use the metaphor from last week. Jesus is telling the, the, the people the banquet hall doors are closing and they soon will be locked. The tree that's not bearing fruit will soon be cut down and cast into the fire. Get right with me today. Now, I love that he ends this passage on a great note of hope. And verily I say unto you, verse 35, ye shall not see me. So that's to say that I'm going to leave you in your sins. The worst thing, the most terrifying thing God can do to you right now is to leave you in your sins. Hey, listen, we said a minute ago our hearts love our sin. We will never turn to God on our own. The the most terrifying form of judgment God can give you in this life is to say, I'm going to hand you over to your own heart, and I'm going to just take my hands off. Jesus says, you will not see me. He's going to depart. He's going to leave them in their sin, in their hard-heartedness, in their rebellion. But notice this word, until... That little word until is a word of great hope and grace. Saying, Israel, you've rejected me. You're going to be left in your sin, but it's not going to be permanent. There's going to be a time in the future where I'm going to renew my working towards you. Until the time when ye shall say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Until looks towards a future time of repentance. Looks toward a future time when they will see Jesus as the one who is blessed, not hated. They'll see him as the one who comes in God's name, not as an imposter. Now, these words are stated at the triumphal entry, but it's not the nation that's saying it. It's his disciples who are saying it. It's those who believe in him who who are saying it. By and large, the nation was indifferent to Jesus. A large portion would, would say, crucify him rather than blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So the fulfillment of this cannot be the triumphal entry. I think we're looking even further into the future. Romans 11, you can read the whole chapter this afternoon if you would like. Paul says, I'm, I'm telling you this great mystery. Israel, the, the actual nation of Israel, the Jewish people, rejected Christ. They have been set aside. But in the future, Romans 11:26 says, all Israel will be saved. Zechariah 12, verse 10 says this, speaking again of Israel, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. You see, the day is coming when Jesus will return. There will be a time of great tribulation. And when he does, the nation of Israel that still to this day rejects Jesus will turn to him in repentance and in faith, and they will look on the one they pierced. They will look on the Messiah who they crucified, and they will turn to him in repentance and in faith, and they will be saved and forgiven. You say, that's great. Okay, that's interesting theology. I'm not, I'm not Israel. But what that does tell us, beloved, is the grace and the mercy of God. Even a nation that has rejected their Messiah and killed him, God offers mercy and grace. For sinners who have held God at arm's length, for sinners who have rejected him and rebelled against him, God says, hey, the day's coming. If you will turn to me, you will be forgiven. So even this message of justice is marked by compassion. And even the declaration of compassion is marked by justice. God's mercy is a just mercy, and his justice has compassion, and his sovereignty is compassionate and just. All of his attributes weave together into this beautiful tapestry of awe-inspiring glory. We can't put Jesus into a box and say, well, he's just a really nice guy. 
compassionate. We should be more like Jesus, just be nice to people. Nor can we say, well, Jesus, you know, turned over tables, so we should be angry and turn over tables as well. No, we see one who is perfectly compassionate, perfectly sovereign, perfectly just. I just want to close out with a couple of points of application. Getting this right protects us from idolatry. Does the Jesus that you worship look like this Jesus? Does he, does he really look like this Jesus who is perfectly sovereign, compassionate, and just? Or have you just sort of picked and chose, sort of done a, like, I'll do a multiple choice Jesus, I'll pick the parts that I like, and put together this sort of Frankenstein Jesus that has a little bit of this and a little bit of that? There's another point. Understanding this of Jesus gives us tremendous peace and hope and joy. When we realize this Jesus is perfectly just, when I am wronged, I don't have to take that wrong on myself and be judge, jury, and executioner and make the other person pay. I can take the promise of Scripture that God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If you have been wronged and you, you, you struggle with that anger and that hurt, you can find hope and comfort knowing that there is a God in heaven who is perfectly just. Likewise, if you've been wronged, you can run to the one who is compassionate and who understands and knows and will embrace you. When you're suffering, it's comforting to know that you have a God who is sovereign over your suffering. When you are wronged, to know there is a God who is just toward all evil and sin. And when you are repentant, to know there's a God who is compassionate and ready to forgive. Whatever the problem is, whether it is suffering, whether it is sin, whether it is being wronged, Jesus is the answer. So will you marvel today at this one who is sovereign over all things? Will you marvel at the one who is compassionate, who laments over murderous sinners, who longs for rebellious sinners and eternally loves redeemed sinners? Will you marvel at the just one who will one day rain down fire on all those who do not know God, who will right every wrong and deliver every troubled saint? Sometimes we live in a world that feels like the foxes have the run of the roost. But Jesus is saying that, ironically, in the end, the hen wins. He will gather his people. He will protect them. He will shelter them. Jesus is enough. Father, would you help us to marvel at you, at your son, at your...